a wedding day is is a big day, right? If you've ever had the uh, privilege of experiencing that, um, maybe maybe it was a good day. Uh, it has the potential to be a good day. Uh, I, there's an old preacher story. You've probably heard it, but I, uh, I will share it with you again. Uh, that about a bride that was very, very nervous about her wedding day, and this as things got closer, her nerves just continued to grow. And so finally, she went to the preacher and said, "Look, I, I just I'm not sure I can do this. This is so nervous. I'm so uh, just I can't handle all this pressure and this nerves that I'm feeling." And so he reassured uh, her by pointing her just to a few simple steps that all you need to do ma'am, is this, is, is you're going to enter the church and you're going to walk down the aisle. So just remember that walk down the aisle and the groom's going to be waiting for you at the altar. And then everyone's going to sing a hymn to start the ceremony, said uh, the minister. Just remember the order and everything will be fine. They rehearsed that a few times. And so... <clears throat> The day of the wedding came and the bride uh, was just overcome with nerves, but she just continued to remember the good advice that the preacher had given her. And she continued to just repeat the, those phrases, uh, I'll alter him, I'll alter him, I'll alter him, I'll alter him. Again, it's a dumb old preacher's joke, but it's, it's the best I could come up with for this. But uh, if you've ever been in that situation, when two people enter into a relationship like a marriage, there can be a lot of fear and a lot of nervousness that comes with that. And that's justifiably so. Putting your life into the hands of another is a risk. And so the attitude or the philosophy that those two people come to that joining of lives with is very, very important. And so today we want to talk about a word that we don't talk about a lot in our culture, um, uh, but the Bible uses it a, a lot, illegal things. You maybe have a contract with a, um, someone who's borrowed money for something, a house, a car, something like that. And, and there is a legal contract, which is important and vital. And, and you can't, there's rules and all the things that go with a legal contract. You probably have maybe some friendships. Maybe you have your favorite um, person who checks you out at the grocery store, your favorite hair cutter, hairstylist, barber, whatever they may be. You have people in your life that there's no legal agreement, but there's a relational connection there. But a covenant really takes both aspects of those things and brings them together into something that has the friendship and the warmth of just a personal relationship, but it also brings with it some of the legal dynamics uh, that a, a contract would have. But it's more than both. And so Tim Keller describes the relational attitude and philosophy that um, our modern age tends to deal with serious relational things with, and I'm going to put this quote, I think, on the screen for you. He describes it this way. He said, most people enter into serious relationships this way. They say this, I will be what I should be as long as and to the degree that you are what you should be. And if you're not, I'm out. There's a lot of that in our world today. That's a pretty popular philosophy, right? It's, it's this whole philosophy of our culture that, that says my happiness, my fulfillment is simply the thing that drives, it's the most important part of the whole thing, right? My individual happiness drives the whole thing. And if you're not feeding that, you are a means to that end. And so there's very much a self-centeredness of that. But a covenant 
is deeper than that. A covenant is deep, different than that. He says this, that two people look at each other, and instead of uh, the one on the left, the one on the right that says this, I will be what I should be, whether you are what you should be or not. I will be what I should be, whether you are what you should be or not. And so those two approaches to serious relationships, um, and you can kind of play that out, that they're going to have different fruits um, connected to them, aren't they? It's a scary thing, though, to enter into a covenant, to come into a relationship and say, I'm going to be what I should be, whether you are what you should be or not. That's a scary place to put your life. It is scary to enter into a covenant. And really that only works if both people in the covenant are saying that. If one person comes with that, but one doesn't agree with that, the person who comes with that is going to enter into a relationship where they're exploited, maybe abused. A lot of ugly things can happen there. But if you do get both parties on board there, if you get two people coming at each other with the idea that I will be what I should be, whether you are what you should be or not, you have the potential to develop and experience a relationship that is far deeper, far more fulfilling, far more life-changing and joy-producing than anything else you will find in this world. But it only happens in a covenant kind of relationship. And so a covenant uses, as we said before, I've got this little chart that maybe captures this, that some, some parts of covenant, when you read the word covenant in the Bible, that God made a covenant with some group of people, um, a, the, the, I, there is the language of love and intimacy. That's the whole friendship, uh, the personal connection part of that. But there's also law language, like if we're going to see here in a moment, that, that God makes uh, a covenant with a group of people, with Israel, for example, and he says, here's the expectations, but there's all, it's, it's very, sounds almost legalese, but in the legalese, there's this, but I'm your God, I have redeemed you, I have saved you, I love you, you are my people, I am your God. There's this personal thing with it, but there's also this legal thing with it. And so you've got this going back and forth in a covenant of both the personal, the warmth, the relational dynamic in that connection, but also the connection and the accountability of law. And so a covenant brings those things together in a way that produces something beautiful when it's embraced and lived out. Tim Keller would go on to say this, A covenant is more loving and intimate than a legal relationship, yet more binding and enduring and accountable than a merely personal relationship. A stunning blend of law and love. It's stunning because it's a personal relationship made more loving and intimate because it is legal. Through voluntary, mutual, binding promises and vows to be loving and faithful, no matter the circumstances, these kinds of relationships take a relationship into an area that is far more deep, far more fulfilling, far more life-changing, and far more joyful. And so that's the covenant. When you read your Bible and you find that God makes a covenant, um, that's what it's trying to get you to. Now, again, we don't use that word in a lot of our dealings um, every day, but we appreciate the sentiment of it and we need it. We need it in our relationship with God and, and we were better for it when we come at each other with those kinds of relationship. 
And so when you read the language of these interactions, you find these beautiful things. And so I want to read you an example. Uh, Your memory verse this week in our core 52 was from Genesis 15, verse 6. Uh, But if you read that whole chapter, what you find is that God is establishing or making a covenant with Abraham. Now, God made a promise back in Genesis chapter 12 that to Abraham that he was going to bless him. He was going to give him land. He was going to give him a people. And he was going to bless all the nations of the earth through him and his family. And that was an ironic thing because Abram at that time was a nomad. He had no land. Uh, He was an old man who had no children. So there was no no. No children in the family yet. And there's also the idea that he was just a nobody living in a foreign land. There's like, how in the world is God going to bless anybody through me? He was in a place that seemed very, very far off from the promise of God. And so as you continue to read the story of Abraham through chapter 12, 13, 14, you find Abraham dealing with all of the uncertainties of living uh, um, in a no place. He was just living in a foreign land in, in Canaan. Um, had come there from far, far away, didn't know anybody, just came there at God's commands. And in chapter 14, you find Abram gets caught up in a political conflict, right? That some of the neighboring kings begin to go to war and they kidnap some of Abram's people and Abraham rescues them. But of course that offends and makes people mad. And so here he is, this guy in this foreign land. He's angered the neighboring powers that be. He's just thinking, I've been doing this for a long time now, God. Are you really serious about what you promised me? Do you really mean that you're going to give me land and give me a child and give me a family and bless anybody through my life? And this is Genesis 15. God establishes a covenant relationship with Abram. Abraham. It's still Abram. He hasn't become Abraham yet. Genesis 15 verse 1. Read it with me here. It says this. After these things, after the, the tensions and the nervousness and the anxiety of dealing with all these foreign kings... After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram, fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So as you read through this, you're going to find elements of what is a covenant. A part of a covenant means that there are blessings that are promised, right? And so what God is saying, I am your reward. I'm your shield. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to do all the things I've said for you. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, with what will you give me? Or what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. There's a foreign custom that if if you were an old couple and you had your your inheritance and your wealth and all the things and you had no children, you could adopt some servant or adopt some local person who would become your, your heir. And so he's saying, is that what I need to go do? I've got this Eliezer of Damascus guy. He can fill the role. I don't see a child. I don't see how this is all working out. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Almost a question there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, I want you to look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, count them. In other words, then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. He reinforces that promise, right? I told you, you will have a child and his offspring will be numerous, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And here's your memory verse in Abram, where he believed the Lord and he, God credited it to him 
as righteousness. So you see his faith. He, he's trusting in God. He's trying to trust God. He's, he's both faith and faithful in the words that your chapter used this week. And he's showing his faith by all the things he's doing and, and following God. And so he says back to God, or God says to him again, I'm sorry, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur from the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So part of the promise was I'm going to give you an, an heir, a child, but I'm also going to give you land. So the first part of this dealt with the child part, but God again reinforces the promise that I'm going to give you land as well. But, but Abram said back to him, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me, and then he begins a list of animals. Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, and a ram, three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, and Abram cut them in half. All right, this is where the story gets a little weird, right? He gets the animals God wants, cuts them in half, and then he laid each half over against the other. So in other words, he put some on this side and some on this side with an aisle in between them. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came, the vultures and all the things came down on the carcasses. Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and deep darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they, shall serve, that, that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in, in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, the, he's still giving the people who inhabit the land of Canaan more time to repent, to do whatever they need to fulfill for 400 more years, and then they will come back and the lands will be given to them. That's the story of Moses and the Exodus and the promised land, right? But that's going to be 400 years from now. But God is making this promise that the land is going to be yours. And so when the sun had gone down in verse 17, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. This is God showing up. It's the same way he appears later on the mountain and fire and all those things. And on that day... The Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying this, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So basically, if you were to get out a map, it's a big old piece of property that God promises, this is what I am giving to you and your descendants after you. Now, Moses could not, excuse me, Abram could not see a child. He could not see the land yet, but God is making a, a promise to him. But in the midst of making the promise, he makes a covenant, the text tells us. And that introduces the idea that as you read your Bible, you're going to find that from time to time, when God wants to relate to people, the way he does it, number one, is that he builds a covenant. You see, covenants are God's consistent way of relating to people. God doesn't just show up and mosey, mosey up to the, the table with you and just start a conversation. God is holy and we are not. He is infinite, we are not. He is all these things that God is and, and we're just merely mortals. So how does God relate to us? He relates to us in covenants. Covenants are God's consistent way of relating to you and me as human beings. In verse, verse 18, said, The Lord made a covenant with Abraham that day. 
And so that is not a unique situation. I want to give you some examples. We'll go through these quickly. You can jot them down and look at them later if you want. But, uh, or if you read your chapter this week, you probably have already seen these. Um, but God made a covenant in the very beginning with Adam for Adam and Eve, right? In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Lord God warned, you can, have the, you can eat freely of the fruit of every tree in the garden. Right? But all this is yours. There's the blessing part of it. Except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat this fruit, you're surely going to die. So every covenant holds blessings and it holds warnings, right? There's warmth and friendship, but there's also a legal part of this that, hey, this is what you have, but this is how you break this. This is where this goes off the rails if you, if you, don't, if you aren't faithful. So he makes a covenant with Adam. And so everything you see in the garden, he's inviting Adam and Eve to partner with him, to join with him, to just enhance, to build, to grow his creation. And that's what Genesis 1 and 2 is all about. God makes a covenant with Noah. You fast forward a little bit later, um, mankind has made a mess of it. Um, earlier in Genesis, it says that every inclination of the heart of every human being was evil, always evil all the time. It was just a mess. And so God then floods the earth, destroys it, judges the earth, but he preserves Noah and his family through the ark. And God makes a covenant, the Bible says, in Genesis 9. Then God told Noah and his sons, Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will flood waters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. One person described this as a covenant of restraint. That yes, God knows that the earth is going to be full of sin, full of rebelliousness, full of wickedness. But God will restrain himself. He will never destroy the earth like that again. Um, he has other things he's going to do instead, which leads you to the third covenant, which is where Abram and his story, Abraham and his story comes in. Again, Genesis 15, 18, that God made a covenant with Abraham to fulfill his promise to him. I'm going to give you a, an inheritance, a family. I'm going to, of all the people on earth that are all messed up and all evil, here's a man who will follow me, who will be my friend, who will partner with me. So he makes a covenant with him and he starts in this small family and begins to grow a blessing for all the world through this family. It continues on. That family grows into an enormous nation. And you find number four, God made a covenant with Moses and the whole nation of Israel that they would be his chosen people to reveal God to the world, that he would work in this nation. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. So again, there's, he makes a covenant with them. All right? If you keep the covenants, you will be blessed. You will be treasured. I will do wonderful, wonderful things for you if you are faithful to the covenant part of this. There's the law part of that, right? Um, although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And so he comes and makes a covenant with Moses and Israel that he will bless them. But if they do not maintain faithfulness to the covenant, they will lose the land, which is exactly what happens. If you read the story of the Old Testament, they continue to fail. And finally, fast forward a few years, a few hundred years into that story. The nation has grown large. They have inhabited the land. They now have a king named David. And he's about to become king, I should say. And God makes a covenant with David that someone from his line will always rule over God's kingdom. 2 Samuel 7 says this, Now go away and say to my servant David, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in my pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. 
and I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, and I will give you rest for all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, David. I will raise up one of your descendants for your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me all for all time, and your throne will be secured forever. And so you get this list of kingdom, of, of covenants, I should say, that starts with, with Noah and, and Abraham and, and builds on that with Moses and David. And, and you find these, if you were to draw a line and just kind of chart out the whole story of the Old Testament, you find these covenants that they are made and everything that happens following that reverts back to the covenant. So when you're trying to make sense of reading your Old Testament and you think, well, these rebellious Israelites, why doesn't God just get rid of them? There's a covenant in place that God said he would bless them. And so God continues to work with that covenant. And so there's these things, there's this tension of God's frustration because they won't be faithful, but yet he is merciful to them more than justifiably so, more than he should be, I should say, because there's this covenant in place. And so uh, gee, you, you read through the story of the Old Testament, there's these covenants that continue to flow through and that explain much of what's going on there. And then finally, number six, Jesus shows up that God has now made a covenant with all of us through Jesus. Hebrews 12, verse 24 says, You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. And we're going to look next week at the new covenant, so we're not going to deal much with that today. But just understand that as a Christian, it's not just you and Jesus. You are part of a covenant, and that covenant has promises to it. That covenant has responsibility and accountability to it. That covenant has a community with it. And so you are joining a covenant when you join Jesus. And so we'll get into that next week. But but just want you to get the idea that as you read through the story of, of Scripture, what you're looking at is a series of covenants and then the management of those covenants following all of those things. And so why is Jesus so important? Because Jesus begins to fulfill and connect all of those covenants. He is the offspring that was going to bless the entire world that God made a promise to Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the law that Moses gave. Here's what a perfect Israelite looks like. And, and why is he so important with, with David? Because he is the king who's going to reign eternal because he is resurrected. And so Jesus fulfills all those covenants as he begins and welcomes us into his own covenant. Again, we'll look at that more in detail next week. And so God relates to you and to me, to human beings through covenants. But what is a covenant? I think, let's ask that question. Um, Number two, the second thing I want you to see, or maybe jot down, is that covenants are used by God to bring clarity, certainty, and confidence into our relationship with him. Again, as I said before, God is different than us, right? But covenants bring clarity and certainty and confidence. If you read your chapter this week, and, uh, or if you didn't, I'm going to read it for part of it for you. Uh, page 27 uh, of your chapter this week on covenants. Mark Moore defined covenants in the Bible in this way. A covenant is a legally binding agreement between two parties. In the Bible situation, oftentimes God and some group of people or a person. It's the greater, number two, the greater of the two parties establishes the covenant. So God being the one in power, he establishes the terms of the covenant. Number three, the conditions specify the rewards if the agreement was kept and the punishment if it is broken. 
And so anytime you see a covenant, almost always when you see a covenant put in place, you find rewards, right? For Israel, you will have a land, you will be blessed, you will be my treasured possession. I will shower incredible blessings on you if you just are faithful to the covenant, to the rules, to the law that I've given you. But he also specifies punishment if it's broken. If you worship other gods, if you disobey, if you just walk away from the covenant, if you're not faithful to it, I will take the land away from you. And that's exactly what happens as the Israelites are eventually um, removed from the land. Number four, the covenant was typically, not always, but typically ratified by a blood sacrifice showing how serious it was. And that takes us back to that weird scene where Abraham took the animals and cut them in half and made the aisle. And we'll get to that in just a second. But, but there's usually a sacrifice of some kind of blood that would show the seriousness um, of that. And so covenants, God used them to clarify and say, okay, Israel, here's what's expected of you. Here's what I've promised to do for you if you're faithful. Here's what will happen to you if you're not. And so let's work this out. Let's live in partnership together. So there was clarity and there's certainty. And for Abraham, as we read from Genesis 15 a moment ago, there was confidence. He was unsure. Can I trust God? But God comes and makes, takes the most serious form of, of promise he can in making a covenant for him. Now, God makes covenants with all kinds of people in the Bible. I've highlighted some of them. But as we get to this last point, I just want us to understand the idea that when God makes a covenant, he understands that we are not very good covenant keepers. We're not very good at that. Um, just follow the story behind every one of the covenants, right? Noah, God makes this beautiful covenant. And the next thing you know, Noah's drunk and doing terrible things in his family. God makes a covenant with Abraham. The very next chapter, you find him trying to uh, figure out how to have a son, and he does it with a handmaiden instead of with his wife. And, and you find Moses. God makes his covenant on the mountain, shows his glory to all Israel. Moses doesn't even get down the mountain before they have built a golden calf. David and his, and his sons. David's faithful to God. He loves God. He's not perfect for God at all, but he tries to love God sincerely. Solomon starts off well, but just begins to tail off. And, and the story of Israel's kings for several hundred years is just the vast majority of them are far away from God. They don't love God. They don't seek to follow God. And it just underscores the idea. This number three is this. That covenants in the Bible underscore the essential role that Christ plays in our ability to know and to relate to God. You see, God comes to us and he wants to relate to you. He wants to relate to you and me and he does so through covenants. But he understands that you are not going to be very good at keeping the covenants. That's not an insult. It's just reality, right? All of our stories, we've all made promises to God that, God, I'll be this person for you. And here we are next week at communion time thinking, oh my goodness, Lord, what did I do this week? I messed it up again. Here I am. I need your grace and mercy once again. The problem is that we are not very good covenant keepers. And all of the Old, covenant, Old Testament covenants that placed requirements on us eventually and often quickly we're broken. And that leaves God in a very tough place. And it's one of those tensions that the Bible, as you read, especially the Old Testament, you get frustrated because why doesn't God just get done, be done with these people? They don't get it. They won't listen to him. They won't obey him. Why doesn't he just give up on them? I love what Michael Whitlock um, said as he kind of puts himself in God's shoes. He said this, I have sworn to bless you 
So that part of that covenant language of God, I have sworn to bless you, but I've also sworn not to bless a disobedient people. And so that God puts God in a hard place, doesn't it, as he looks at Israel. He has promised to bless them, very serious promises, but he's also promised not to bless a disobedient people. So that leaves God in this weird, awkward place of, I love them relationally, but they've broken the covenant legally. And it just leaves him in this awkward place. And by what fearful means am I to solve this situation? And so that brings us back to Genesis 15. God has said that he's going to bless Abraham. And he asks how he can know this. How can he be sure? Abraham wants just, yeah, just reinforce this for my mind one more time, please. And so God tells Abraham to kill some animals, to get those animals, cut them up into pieces and arrange them in two rows with an aisle down the middle so that you can walk through them. Now, that sounds weird and confusing to us, right? I don't, hopefully you haven't done this this week in your home or your life, okay? This isn't something we normally do. If I come to your house and there are animals cut up, I'm leaving, right? I'm not sticking around. I don't know what you're up to. Um, but for Abraham, that was not a strange thing. This was a very common thing. And when God said, go get some animals, he knew exactly what it was because it was common in that day to initiate a covenant in this manner. And so Abraham was not confused at all. In those days, it was common when a lord wanted to make a covenant with a peasant or a lesser servant, this is how it was done. And so animals were slain, the pieces were arranged, and then when the servant, the lesser of the two parties, took his oath, he did so as he walked between the animals. Now, why would he do that with these slain animals to the left and right? Because he was acting out the curse of the covenants. It was his way or her way of swearing loyalty to you, to the Lord, or the master. And if I do not keep my promises, may I become like one of these animals. So that's a pretty serious thing, right? If, if that's different than cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, what you used to say, those kind of things. That's serious, but slice me up like an animal, that's another level of seriousness, right? So there's a seriousness to this. May I cut into, be, be cut into pieces like this if I don't keep my part of this deal. And so Abraham figured out, he was, as he was figured, he was arranging pieces like this for a ceremony like that, where Abraham would walk the middle, pledge his faithfulness to God. And again, understand that the lesser person was always the one who walked through the pieces. The Lord's never did. The important people never did because they were in charge. And so he waited and he waited and he shooed away to all the vultures and all the, the birds and then Genesis 15 says that a great darkness came down, and that's the picture of the darkness of judgment of God's presence. In the midst of that darkness was God himself. He appeared as a smoky, fiery, fiery pillar, just as he would at Sinai, uh, not too far down the road. And he passed through the pieces as he promises to bless Abraham. Now note the change, right? It's not Abraham walking and promising his fidelity to God. It is God who passes through the animals and is making a promise to Abraham. Abraham was startled because of what that means. It's not just that God will bless you, but he's promised to die if he doesn't bless him. He promises to allow himself to be torn to pieces if he doesn't keep his part of the deal. So it's two shocking things. God went through the pieces and Abraham was never called to go through the pieces of meat. God goes for him, and the ceremony ends. And Genesis 15, 18 says that God made a covenant with Abraham. And again, this was an unheard of thing. It was amazing for the Lord to come and walk through the pieces, but for the servant not even to make the oath, that was a statement about God's 
recognition of Moses or Abraham's ability to keep it. Abraham did. He didn't see how this could be. It was simply God's way of making the promise for both of them. He was taking the curse on himself. If you fail or if I fail, may this happen to me. If you fail, I'll take your punishment on me. And not only will I be torn apart if I don't keep the promises, I will be torn apart if you don't keep the promises. Abraham, I'm going to bless you no matter what. And so as you read through the Old Testament and you find this tenacious determination of God to be patient, wanting to bless his people, when they haven't done a thing to deserve it in decades, where does that come from? He continues to go back to this. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This covenant that he makes, he promises to bless them. But yet there's this tension because they keep failing at the covenant. And so what does he do with that? He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you no matter what. Even if it means that my immortality, immortality must become mortal. Even if my glory is drowned in darkness. Even if I have to be torn to pieces. And when you get to Jesus, that's exactly what happens. How does God solve the tension between people he loves and wants to bless, but people who will not be faithful to the covenant? How does he solve that? He solves that on Calvary. And that's where Jesus becomes an essential part of this covenant-keeping part. Centuries later, darkness comes on Calvary. And in the darkness, there was a God in the person of Jesus Christ who was being torn to pieces. Nails, spears, thorns. And why was that? Because Jesus was taking on himself the curse of the covenant. They hadn't been faithful. There were consequences to not being faithful to the covenant. And those fell on Jesus. Galatians 3.13 says this. That Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law... By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. On the cross, Jesus absolutely fulfilled the conditions of both sides of the covenant. He brings his perfect life that perfectly lived out the law. He brings that which, how, does a, how do you get blessed in the covenant? You live it out perfectly. And Jesus brings his perfection and shares the blessing with those who do not deserve it. But there's also the punishment side of it because we had broken the, the law of the covenants. And so what does Jesus do there? He takes the curse upon himself off of us and he puts it upon himself. Jesus completely fulfilled the terms of the covenants. Both the good for the blessing and the bad for the curse. It was with his perfect life that he brings blessing. And it was with his sacrificial death that he completely fulfilled the curse of the covenant. And that leaves the blessing for you and me and anyone else who, le who comes with empty hands seeking and calling upon the Lord. And that's where the gospel comes in. And next week we're going to pick up and talk about the blessings of the new covenant. But I don't think you'll appreciate the new covenant without understanding the consequences and the reality that God has always dealt, even in the Old Testament, with people through covenants. And now today, as we look into next week, we hold tightly and thankfully to Jesus. Because he, through his life, gives us blessings we did not deserve and takes away the curse that we did deserve. And so we trust in him 
we turn on him, turn to him, and we lean on him. And so, would you pray with me this morning? Our God and our Father, thank you that you loved us enough to take the curse of our sinfulness, of our failure to live out the law, to live out the covenant faithfully. Thank you that you took that upon yourself in the person of Jesus. And as he groaned and as he died and he, as he endured the pain of the cross, um, he did that for us. And so thank you for the important place that he served us. But I also pray today that in each of our hearts, that there's a place of gratefulness that recognizes that I am a covenant breaker. I am unable to keep the covenant of, of the law, the covenant of, of life and faithfulness. I am, am I unable to keep that covenant faithfully. And yet one has taken that price for me and for each one here today. And so thank you for, for Christ and the important role that he plays. And so may we leave here today um, with minds that aren't focused on the reality that I'm a covenant breaker, because that's a true statement. But God, would you allow us to grab a hold of the truth that, that Jesus took the consequences of being a covenant breaker upon himself. But because of his perfect life, he pours out the blessings of being a covenant keeper. And so we can know you and we can walk in forgiveness and we can enjoy the gifts of grace that come to us from a covenant keeper. And so thank you for Jesus. I don't know if all this means anything to any of us today, but I pray that the story of Jesus means something to us today and that you would just capture our hearts with that good news. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.